This is an ABC podcast. Is your medical information in the hands of hackers? Yes, this week on Download This Show, the Medibank customer data hack may be one of the most alarming in Australia's recent online history. Also on the show, just how good is TikTok at stopping online misinformation? And instead of protesting in the streets, what happens when you protest in the middle of Zoom meetings? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, freelance journalist extraordinaire Alice Clark. Welcome to Download This Show. Thank you for having me. And preemptive warning, if you like everything that's going to come out of Alice's mouth in this show, you should definitely subscribe to her newsletter, which is called Press Any Button. You can find it on Substack. Uh, also joining us is Seamus Byrne, the head of content for Byteside. Welcome. Uh, yeah, very good to be here. And Byteside is also a newsletter. So we're all newsletter people this week. All right, mate. <laughs> Some of us don't have bloody newsletters. I've just got 14 TV shows and a podcast. Um, the only thing you don't do. <laughs> no the only deal. thing I don't do. No, big deal. No, one, no one wants to read my writing. Um, now, big news this week in the world of hacking, or at the very least, like, losing of crucial data. Seamus, what happened to Medibank? So Medibank Private, uh, which also owns uh, AHM, or, yeah, my teacher will probably get annoyed at me for saying H rather than H. Oh, your um, teacher. And... It's on RN. Do you know how many people are going to be like, he said it wrong. Uh, I'm going I'm to write a letter. Please don't write in. Sorry, my aunt is don't. already writing me an email about that H. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I'm apologising. They own uh, that Medibank thing. Private. They have uh, had a pretty serious data breach. It started two weeks ago when they first announced that they detected a breach, but at the time actually said, you know what, actually, we don't think there's any evidence that customer data has been accessed. We think this is probably okay. A week later, they announced they'd been contacted by hackers uh, who sent them 100 records of customer details in incredible detail. And they were like, yeah, that is actually ours. Um, so really sorry, everybody. Turns out they did get in and they did get an awful lot of information or at least 100 records, but they claimed 200 gigs. Uh, and then as this is sort of progressing, they're still trying to work out exactly went wrong. Uh, and yeah, it's a pretty big deal because of course, it's one thing when we've had the Optus breach, you know, not many weeks before that, it's another thing when we're talking about health data and very private information being released. So when we say very private data, like Alice, walk me through what sort of information they might have on customers. Well, think of everything that you've done that you would like your uh, private health insurance to cover. They know all of that, plus where you live, how you pay, where you go. Like they know which part of your back hurts. They know if you have depression or anything like that. They know everything that you probably don't want your employer to know or just want to keep private. Not everyone puts their uterus in a jar. Some people have private secrets. And basically you can use so much private health insurance data against people in so many blackmaily ways. Mm. Uh, like think you could out people with this. You could reveal their yeah, mental health issues. It's just, it's so much. It's hard to get your mind around it. So Seamus, we're talking about 200 gigabytes of customer data here. What are the hackers after? Like, have they have they made public their um, their gambit? 
Yeah, so there's kind of two sides of it. They have basically started trying to, you know, I guess we put air quotes around this, negotiate uh, with Medibank <laughs> when it comes to some kind of a ransom. Uh, I'm not sure if there were specific details about how much they're asking for, but they were very explicit about the fact that what they were threatening to do was to not just release information, but actually target the top thousand highest profile members data uh, and basically go and ransom them individually if Medibank Private wasn't going to pay up. So that's where it sort of gets really quite scary is that idea of saying, well, you know, it's one thing if the business itself doesn't want to play, but it's another thing entirely if individuals are being threatened with very specific information about their health, you know, diagnoses, procedures, locations where they've had medical services, all that sort of stuff they have access to and could then say, if you don't want this released in the public, you're going to have to pay. How has Medibank responded, Alice? Uh, they've said that they're a bit concerned and that they're going to look into the data that they've been sent from the hackers. And I find the idea that they're getting the information on the hack from the information then being sent by the hackers to be not very reassuring. I think one of the latest updates that I've seen today is actually the idea that um, they're now learning that the hackers got in through a credential breach. Mm. Uh, and this is kind of the big issue is that they have slowly realising that somebody with high level access got their information uh, stolen. That stolen information was then sold on uh, you know, a cybercrime forum, and then somebody managed to get in and actually in detail carefully and slowly look through the Medibank system to try to work out what it was they wanted to to remove, even to the point of establishing multiple backdoors to try to have redundancy. So, like, this was a really professional attack once the people got that access, and that's why I think Medibank has really struggled to, you know, really find out exactly what went down as easily as if, say, like in the Optus case where it was a far more kind of simple, uh, you know, juvenile sort of a, a hack by comparison. Uh, yeah, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Kirk has done some really good reporting on this uh, today. He actually spoke to some former Medibank employees and found that their credentials had been uh, compromised and that they were still active months <sighs> after they stopped working at Medibank. <sighs> which is just really bad cybersecurity yeah. practices. Like they had uh, two-factor authentication on, which is good, but as we're seeing is not enough, especially when you aren't turning off access on these credentials months after they've stopped working there. So no one's going to be like, no one's logging in to check to see if it's still good. Seamus, I mean, we brought up the Optus hack earlier and it feels like we're hearing more and more about these sorts of breaches. And my question is, are they happening more or are they just being reported more? So I think at a, in a global context, you know, there's definitely more hacks out there these days. There's been, you know, a big increase in activity off the back of the pandemic, more hybrid work. The idea that many organisations now, you know, have moved to a scenario where people are accessing important systems from outside 
you know, the, the, the classic headquarters where you could have that very physical firewall to access to facilities. Now it's that idea that security has to work everywhere and anywhere. It's created more opportunity uh, to find these kinds of weaknesses in organizations that haven't, I guess, modernized their security enough to stop this sort of thing. And so a lot of it is that, you know, they, they will use pretty sort of standard scripts and attacks to just kind of scour the internet looking for any weakness out there. So it's not that they're being specifically targeted, they're just finding weaknesses. And when they find the weakness, then typically that hacker will then sell that exploit to somebody else to then go and actually you know do the actual hardcore crime stuff. Um, that's the technical term for it, hardcore <laughs> crime stuff. Um, but yeah, so this is, I think, just a case where, you know, we've had about five different Australian companies all hit in quick succession, but it's just almost like the roll of the dice where it it's all just happened in a big bundle that makes it feel like Australia has somehow been targeted, whereas it's just that sort of ongoing mix of global attacks and just about five of them in a row have all happened here. Alice, should events like this force us to really change our attitude to the information that we upload right now? Because I feel like, you know, off the back of, off the back of the Optus scandal, we, you know, one of the conversations that popped up, which is like, hold on, if they need X amount of identifying material to verify your identity, that's fine for that, that entry point or signing up an account. Why are they keeping it, right? Like, why do they need it beyond that point? But with information like this, I mean, is there a similar lens that can be applied to Medibank? Do they need to store this stuff or can it be removed or does it suddenly become useless if um, if we stop having this kind of information stored in these services? Is, should we be changing our relationship with what we we invite companies to keep on us? I Yes, pretty much. I think we need some stronger regulations on what, com- what information companies are allowed to keep on us and much stronger penalties for when they have a breach. Because at the moment, it's pretty cheap for companies to have a breach and have all their com- their customers' data stolen. So perhaps they're not going to be as stringent about their safety practices as perhaps we would like them to be. Uh, like the info in the Optus hack was bad for identity theft, but the Medibank hack is true nightmare level stuff. But I don't know how much of that information is extraneous. They do need to keep data on how you've used your health insurance so they know which limits you're reaching. And they do need to know where you're going so they know how to give them money. Um, I I guess we can only hope that the government has better security on my health record because that's terrifying if somebody gets access to that. And I don't have a lot of confidence in the Australian government when it comes to digital things. But we do really need to force companies to review what they keep, why they keep it, how long they keep it for, and punish them when they mess it up. Because we know privacy is an illusion. We know none of our data is ever going to be truly secure. It's not with small companies, it's not with major corporations. And we need to do something before it's too late to put the genie back in the bottle. Seamus, should we be rethinking what we upload and, and what we invite a company to keep on us? Yeah, look, I think a really good example that I heard about last week was, you know, things like real estate agents who, you know, they're very typically, you know, small to mid-sized businesses. They probably don't have great security practices, but they do require people to fill out all sorts of personal information when they're applying for a rental. Um, and 
somebody doesn't necessarily feel like they have a choice in that moment. So it feels like we do need regulations that actually try to get back to minimising what people hold and what people even sort of can ask for, you know, in terms of what is required and certainly what is retained. And that definitely relates to a lot of the Optus questions around why were they sitting on so much of this personal information once the verification, you know, once that identity check has been made, can't they just have a tick in a box and then get rid of most of that uh, detail? But of course, it also relates to, you know, governments having the past forced companies to hold more metadata to store this kind of information for years at a time, which was always then questioned as being this honeypot of information that hackers at some point would really like to get their hands on. So hopefully, you know, after this phase where we've thought, let's just make people retain lots of data and actually let's scoop up as much data as we can because that's really great. Hopefully these kinds of incidents all at once help people get back to that idea of saying people should be able to say, I don't want to have to give you anything more than the bare essentials. That shouldn't be held against me in any way. And in fact, if I've given it to you, you should have to delete it very quickly Hmm. uh, because there's no reason for you to hold on to it. Well, funny you should say that because next up on Download This Show, by the way, you are listening to the voices of Alice Clark, Seamus Byrne and Mark Fennell. Uh, TikTok, the hugely successful video sharing app, uh, Alice has been, um, (laughs) it's been forced to deny that they're, tracking and following US citizens. How has this story come about? So Forbes wrote an article claiming that the company tracked several users and had plans to track more. Uh, Originally, I think TikTok was saying that it was employees, but these people never worked for TikTok. Uh, TikTok has come back out and said, actually, we don't track the precise location of American users, uh, so we don't do that. But then if you look at the TikTok user agreement... It asks you to agree to the possibility of TikTok tracking your precise location. So it's a bit hard to work out which side to believe on that. Um, This is a perennial thing that comes up with uh, Terms of Service. Is what is in the TikTok Terms of Service any different, Seamus, to what you would find in Instagram or Facebook or or Twitter? Is Is it distinctive in any way, shape or form? Uh, yeah, look, that is, I think, a really good point to make that that they all want to cover as many bases as possible for the things they may or may not collect. And in fact, quite often they might include things that they aren't collecting, but include them in case they want to just add that in later on, you know, because it's easier to get someone to agree right up front than it is when you send out that saying, we've updated our terms of service. That's usually when people start going, what have they changed? So... The first time you install something is usually the time that it's easiest to convince people to just say yes to everything. Um, but overall, you know, it's yeah, it's a good point there that they have said they don't do the tracking of specific locations. But again, I guess we've had these questions come up so often around TikTok with the, uh, you know, the questions over what they are doing. Remember, there was one where they. Uh, someone discovered that the, their application had the potential to log keystrokes uh, through the web browser mode. If you opened the web browser from within TikTok, it could monitor every keystroke that you make in that web browser. And they said, oh, that's just a feature that's in one of the bits of software we use, but we don't actually use that feature. If you keep having to say, oh, I mean, that feature might be there, but we don't actually use it, it definitely starts to become that bigger question of going, well, why did you put them all there in the first place? 
Yeah, I mean, so it's worth pointing out, just underlining that the TikTok have been quite um, vocal about saying they they do not collect precise GPS location from information from users. But at the same time, you know, in July, there was a um, a cybersecurity firm that found that at least on some phone models, um, the device's GPS location was requested at least once an hour. So, you know, there's obviously some gap that exists between those two things. Um, The question, I guess, becomes the why. Like, what, what is it? I mean, when you hear that an app, not just TikTok, but any app is recording your location, there's obviously like a little ping, the little the, the paranoid ping that goes off in your head goes, hold on, why is it doing this? But it's more common than people think, Alice. Why do, do apps, social media apps, want that location data? What are, they, what are they actually doing with it? Because the business of social media apps is to sell your data for advertising, Social media apps are just there to sell you stuff. Like, you can have a good time and do your social media, but that's not what the companies necessarily really care about. They want as much data on you as possible so they can sell targeted advertising so then you will buy things. If they know where you are and where you go, they know what shops you visit. They know where you hang out. They could probably make fairly educated guesses about where you work, what you do, what social socioeconomic level you're in, uh, and even what subcultures you're a part of. Like, they know you visit the goth rave, or that you just really like ties. And they will advertise to you based on that. That is the whole point of all of these apps. And they don't even necessarily need to use the precise GPS tracking on your phone to do that. They can also track your location by uh, looking at which Wi-Fi networks are around you, and which cellular towers you're connected to, and which other devices you are near. They don't need to have precise location tracking on to track basically your precise location. I think part of why the TikTok example gets a lot of attention is obviously because the company has its um, corporate roots in in China and there is generally a concern about what gets handed over to the Chinese government for companies that do have offices and servers in China. Um, You know, this question does come up often on the show, I would put it to you, Seamus, like what is the level of concern and scrutiny in line with what we know about what ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, does or doesn't do? Um, Yeah, I think I'm sure that xenophobia plays into this to, you know, to a certain degree, absolutely, because uh, I, I guess particularly as China has sort of shifted its stance, you know, at a global level to be sort of a bit more, uh, you know, aggressive in that sense of wanting to exert its influence across, you know, the the regions a lot more. And, you know, as everything geopolitically becomes more tense, I think people start to kind of question exactly what kinds of nefarious reasons they could do these sorts of activities. And the fact that this tracking question wasn't just a question of saying, you know, TikTok might be tracking all of our locations. It was the idea that, you know, the report from Forbes really said that it was at ByteDance headquarters, that there was a discussion over tracking specific people inside America. So that really kind of then had that key political tension attached to to that question as well. So I think there's a lot of it that's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. But, you know, I think it's also totally correct to look at the idea of saying, how much of this is exactly the same as what every other, you know, American social media platform may or may not be tracking and why are we comfortable uh, if with one or the other? And, again, I think the tracking thing is kind of interesting because, as you say, it's very 
advertising oriented in a sense. Whereas, you know, I think there are the bigger questions around things like how do the algorithms, you know, choose what to show us each day? How could they be uh, manipulated to sow discontent amongst people or to just create you know, more social division, which again, Facebook has been incredibly good at uh, in its own right. It doesn't need a Chinese app to come in and sort of do that separately. Uh, but there's so many layers to these questions right now about how this all works. Just staying on the topic of TikTok, uh, there's an interesting story out of the US this week. Uh, TikTok actually failed to stop the most misleading political ads in a test that was run by researchers, Alice. What was the test? What were they looking for? So they put through... 10 ad, political ads in English, 10 in Spanish that said things like um, giving the incorrect election date or saying already voted in the primary, then your voters are automatically registered for the midterms. You can stay home, which is obviously incorrect. And they put this through on a couple of different platforms, including YouTube and Facebook. And they found that basically all of them got through on TikTok. Uh, YouTube took a day to get around to taking them all down and Facebook let about half of them through. And I think it's beautiful that TikTok is going back to Facebook's greatest hits and making mistakes as a social network. This all feels <laughs> really nicely familiar. It's good to be back. Is it that surprising, Alice, that, it, that that's the kind of timescale it's operating at? No, not even slightly. Uh, there is something like millions of minutes or billions of minutes of TikTok videos uploaded every day. Uh, doing that kind of content moderation is really expensive. It takes a long time. And at the beginning, companies just don't necessarily want to spend that time or money until there is some kind of national scandal on the scale of Facebook's 2016 election problems to actually spend that money. Would it be nice if they learned from Facebook's mistakes? Yes. It probably wouldn't be that hard. ByteDance has more money than God, they can pay a bunch of people to watch these ads before approving them. But then it wouldn't but, happen at speed, would it? Yeah. And that's but, the whole thing. You need, it needs, like, you know, the, the moment you inter, in, introduce a human to the program, it's going to slow the whole thing down and that's going to have a massive yes. impact on scale. And go fast and break but stuff sounds really good until we found that the stuff that it broke was democracy and we kind of needed that. I feel like if I ran promos for this show, that is exactly the, the, the grab I would choose. It makes me feel like we need to run promos for this show just so we can use that line. Yeah, look, I mean, this is my biggest rant in the whole question of how social media advertising works is that it's totally one thing to say, look, there's lots of people uploading user-generated content every day. It's hard to moderate. But I think when advertising is involved and you're now making money out of it, there should be no excuse for the fact that you're operating at scale. You know, if you were to say, look, Bob in accounting is really busy. So, look, we can't blame him, the human, for having not picked up on a bunch of stuff. Like if that was operating at, let's say, a local newspaper scale, that's not okay. Newspapers are responsible for the ads that run in their newspapers. Like that kind of process has always traditionally been, if you're being paid for it, you are absolutely responsible for it. So the fact that they get to wave their hands and say, well, there's just, but there's so many millions of these ads being run every day. It's like, well, then it is a, a bigger problem than we're even talking about. And if they had to, you know, if they had to actually say, you can't put an ad up until it has been checked and verified, well, then that would slow them down. That would introduce humans back in the equation. They would also probably make their ads cost as much 
as they cost to buy in traditional media outlets, <laughs> which would deal with this whole problem we've been having about the fact that social media ate all of the advertising dollars in the entire industry. So I think it's kind of ridiculous that they always get this free pass just because of scale. I'd like to add that Lego last year launched a social media thing for kids where a human watched every single video before it was uploaded and allowed to be shown to children. I'm not saying that TikTok can do that. This social media thing got closed down really, really quickly because nobody wanted to watch 30-second videos of Lego figures dancing to the same 10 songs. I mean, I do. And if it was, if they relaunched <laughs> it, I would definitely, definitely Probably got really that. expensive to watch those videos as well. Also, they realised <laughs> yeah. it was just cheaper to make Lego masters in every region. But, you know, <laughs> oh, same yeah. time. Yeah, but like... If Lego can do it with video on a platform nobody wanted to use, surely TikTok has this power. Hold on, there'll be a bunch of people listening to this going, hold on, but the Lego thing failed. Maybe this is why it failed. Is there any, could you pin the failure of the Lego social network on on its uh, commitment to responsible content? Because uh, that no, would be so depressing. It would be so depressing. Let's not, but... let's not, please. Oh, no. <laughs> The sets that you had to buy to be able to make these videos cost around 40 bucks and they were not that good. That actually makes so me feel better. I think better. it was just really go. expensive. It was that. It was that definitely made that. me feel a lot better. Hey, uh, finally here on the show, uh, have you ever considered picketing, protesting via Zoom? Well, turns out people have already tried and it lands in a very grey legal area, Seamus. Walk me through what's happened to you. Yeah, so at Sydney University, there's been uh, a lot of real world picketing going on, students striking on behalf of you know, better staff working conditions. Uh, but then the university started sending messages to staff to say, you know what, might be easier if you run your tutorials on Zoom and run them from home and that way the, you know, the picket line issues aren't going to get in your way. And so a bunch of people started to take up what they've called Zoom picketing and they basically got access to, and I'm sure some people were helping out, distributing the the links to access these particular Zoom tutorials and Zoom lectures and a whole bunch of people would then log into that and just start making a lot of noise and generally disrupting the ability to hold that online class and in the process, uh, you know, ensure that it wasn't just the physical picket line at the university, but it was also anywhere that a class was taking place that there would be a level of disruption to try to tackle this uh, issue in a whole new way. So this is a, it's an evolution of, I guess, strike tactics to accommodate the, the fact that we don't always do things in physical locations. Alice, just without sort of, in, you know, without sort of engaging in the, I guess, the merits of the what they're actually picketing, just as a methodology, is this the direction that uh, the protesting should go? Is, this, is there something in this that, that our kind of wider protests can take and learn from? Well, I think if they put the classes online to stop the in-person classes being picketed, then yeah, obviously picketing the online classes is the next logical step. I don't think online picketing is going to work for most in industries that require people to be there in person. But if an industry's main output is online and you can disrupt that online output, then yeah, go for it. If you have a reasonable thing to protest for, then that seems like a really clever way to do it. Take it to where the people are. At the end of the day, the people that run the Zoom meeting, they will always have the ability to eject and mute. You know, like there's something to be said for like the the power dynamics of a digital space are, Alice, just fundamentally different to the power dynamics of a physical protest. They are, but never underestimate 
the ability for somebody running a Zoom to not know how Zoom works. <laughs> um, you're protesting, but I, you're on I, mute. <laughs> well, that we managed to have somebody on mute at the IT Journalism Awards <laughs> last week. Like, yes. this is... Mm-hmm. <laughs> technology has so many pitfalls built in and not everybody is going to know how to do everything in the moment, particularly when they're flustered. So you might, if you get a particularly tech capable person you're protesting against, they might be able to take action against you. But first they'll be surprised and it'll take them a couple of minutes to work out what you're doing, why and how to stop it. And every time it happens, uh, the three of us will be back together here to debate what worked and what didn't work. And I think that's beautiful. Me too. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) The real protest is the friends we made along the way. And with that, I shall leave you a huge thank you to Alice Clark. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And if you enjoyed Alice Clark's musings, uh, make sure you subscribe to her newsletter. Press any button. You can find it on Substack. And Seamus Byrne, Head of Content for Byteside, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Always good to be back. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.